0: Welcome, welcome, welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton. I'm the co-host and co-producer of this Canadian, though we prefer to say America adjacent Formula One podcast, today's a bit of a special show. Obviously, this year we've done some cool things. We've tried some neat concepts. Our interview series has been a huge success and we really hope you've enjoyed them. We pioneered, we piloted the book club episode earlier in the summer, something we hope to start building on as we get into the winter season. Of course, we've done our race recaps all year with Mr. Tim Haraney of TSN as well as our weekly news show. What I wanted to do today, especially as we sit here, it's early December, the days are ticking away, is I wanted to reflect back on some of the episodes that resonated most with our audience. And I'm not going to belabor the point or drag out an introduction here because you're going to hear it again in a couple of minutes, but by far one of the most popular podcasts that we did this year was a sit down with Seth Whiteberg. And it was a podcast where he lent his industry, his producer chops, and helped us break down and understand the background in the decision making that ultimately brings drive to survive to our Netflix accounts in the spring of every single season. It was a lot of fun doing this podcast. We have already talked to Seth and we've committed to working with him again and doing an immediate reaction to season, I guess it's going to be season five, season six, who even knows anymore, but we're going to sit down with Seth and do a breakdown of the latest season in a couple of months. In the meantime, whether you've listened to this podcast before or not, it is a great, great listen and something that'll help you get through the holiday season. So if you're out for a walk, out for a run, out for a drive as you're on the way to the In laws to celebrate Christmas, I highly recommend you uh, click play and enjoy. Talk to you soon.
1: Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Welcome
0: to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton, and not joining me today is my typical co-host, Mark Daly. And that's because this is a continuation of our interview series. One of the commitments that we had made to everybody listening at home was that going into 2022, we were going to work to create far more content than we were spitting out last year. And to be quite frank, we were really, really proud of the work that we had done last year. But given the enormous appetite that all of you have for Formula One content, we want To do everything possible to deliver on that. As I alluded to a couple of moments ago, this episode is a continuation in our interview series, and joining us today is Seth. Whiteberg Seth is not only an enormous Formula One fan, but he's also spent many years working in the TV and film industry. Seth is a writer and producer, originally from Boston. He now lives with his family in Brooklyn. Seth is the creator of Game Theory with Bonamani Jones on HBO, and was previously a senior writer for the Patriot Act on Netflix. Prior to that, Seth was co-executive producer for This Week at the Comedy Cellar and a staff writer for The Opposition with Jordan Klepper, both on Comedy Central. Included amongst his wealth of additional credits are the first three seasons of Comedy Central's Drunk History, for which he received two Emmy nominations. Seth's writing has been published in The New Yorker, Esquire, Chicago Magazine, and for many years, he was the lead humor writer for the Chicago Tribune. His personal passions include his family, including his adorable dog, the National Basketball Association, particularly his treasured Boston Celtics, and cheeseburgers. Seth is joining us today not just because he's a huge fan of Formula One, but also because his television experience enables him to share interesting insights and understandings into how a show like Drive to Survive is produced and how certain key decisions are made around production and editing.
2: Seth, welcome to the show. Mark, it is such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. This show has been so important in my journey as a new Formula One fan in the last year. And uh, it's just, a, it's an absolute honor to be here.
0: Seth, I cannot thank you enough for those incredibly kind words. And it means a lot, I think, really to both Mark and I, if you feel that we've nurtured your passion for Formula One in any conceivable way. But maybe talk to me about what it was that drew you into Formula One originally. Was it that you had family that was watching, friends that were watching, or like so many other people, was it Drive to Survive on Netflix and your exposure to that program?
2: So... I think my, my journey is probably pretty similar to a lot of listeners on the show. Lo- heard lots of people talking about Drive to Survive. I've always been a huge NBA fan, NFL fan, typical, you know, American sports fan, you know, never was into motorsports at all. You know, growing up like a, you know, a Jewish kid in New England, just had no point of entry or access to it whatsoever. Actively disliked the idea of getting into it. Just I I, I couldn't relate to it at all. Watched the series, got totally hooked. I think the thing to me that jumped out is, you know, you have this incredible series that's well done that we're going to talk about today. Uh, and then transitioning to starting to watch the sport, um, what became so clear to me is like it you have the sport elements of it combined with an engineering challenge, which I sort of think it fundamentally is, combined with a soap opera. And those, those three things together are such a potent mix. They are so unique. Um, And I was totally hooked. Um, Absolutely. I mean, granted, as soon as I started watching it, I had no idea what I was watching. The show in no way prepares you to actually watch the sport. Um, But I, you know, pick, started picking stuff up, obviously started listening to stuff like crazy and got really into it. I think, um, so I watch it typically on ESPN here in America. They'll have the Sky Sports broadcast. And then I'm also a, you know, a, a, an F1 TV pro subscriber as well. So, you know, what I find myself doing now is actually watching it on TV and then I'll have an onboard up on my phone and then trying to be listening to the race engineers, you know, um, at at the exact same time. And, um, it's been an amazing journey and you know, it's been a, a tough journey in uh, the respects of been asking my wife and family to tolerate more sports uh, on. Um, the one thing I wanted to quickly share, though, that has been really fun in our house that I'm sure I am not the only one doing, but that I would encourage anyone to try if they are wanting their family to get more on board with it, if they're if they're currently not in on it, is what we do here is I have a two-year-old son, and we're always looking for stuff to do on the weekend, my wife and I with him. So now what we do is... Whatever country the race is in that Sunday, we will commit to sort of researching and, you know, creating whatever like breakfast, brunch, lunch situation is native to that country here at home. So if it's, you know, Monza weekend, we'll find an amazing Italian bakery here at Carroll Gardens in Brooklyn, uh, you know, or... um, Sochi, we went down to Brighton Beach, found a Russian bakery, got little Ponchik donuts, you know, and then Sunday we have a big, a big spread. Um, And so now my family's in on it too, for the, for the sugar at the very least. (laughs) Seth, I love the fact that you're using food to bond with your family and help create a community of
0: Formula One in your house. I do have to ask though, the Canadian Grand Prix returns this year for the first time since 2019. What will you be buying on that race weekend? Wait, you tell me,
2: what is it what is a typical Canadian breakfast?
0: So I think that's a fair question, and, and I would say quite honestly, the most common breakfast food for Canadians would be almost anything on the menu at Tim Hortons. I don't know if Tim Hortons has yet penetrated the the boroughs of New York, including Brooklyn, but obviously Tim Hortons breakfasts are incredibly popular up here. Probably from a typical stereotype perspective, you know, pancakes, waffles with maple syrup is probably very, very popular, although I think because of the calorie content, it's not something that people would eat every single day. But I think those are a couple of good options for you. Now, before we move on, I do have to ask you a question. You're a huge NBA fan. Your team, the Boston Celtics, are absolutely surging, led by a monster, an otherworldly superstar like Jason Tatum, who is probably a lock for an all-NBA roster spot this season. Who do you think is going to come out of the NBA's Eastern Conference? Is it going to be Miami?
2: Is it going to be Milwaukee? Is it going to be Boston? Um I want to I want to pick the Celtics. I think I would stick with the Bucks right now. Giannis is uh Giannis Antetokounmpo if people aren't familiar, unbelievable player. Um and uh I I don't see anything sort of disturbing that core and that experience right now that they they've had kind of a lackluster regular season, but I think they're going to make a late charge. I have no faith in Brooklyn or Philadelphia to, to, to put it together. I
0: think Milwaukee's a really fair bet to come out of the Eastern Conference. Miami's been good. They haven't been exceptional. They haven't had to be exceptional, despite the fact that they're incredibly deep. Philly, to me, is still a bit of a question mark. And I think Chicago has cooled, despite the heroics of DeMar DeRozan so far this season. Now, before we move on, I have to ask you a question. You have an absolute wealth of experience in film and TV production and writing. How did that career come to you? Is this something that you sought out when you were in high school? Is this something that came to you following your college education? How did you come to this as your career?
2: Um. So I went to to college thinking I was going to become like an English teacher. And I ended up discovering improv comedy. That took me to Chicago right after I graduated, where I was studying improv and performing and um, became a touring company member at this theater called The Second City. I don't know if you've ever heard of SCTV, was an old Canadian TV show, but those folks. Um, And um, sort of just fell into performing and writing from there. And then I I think after a number of years of, of doing both of those things and sort of the perfunctory SNL auditions and that kind of stuff realized that it was the writing grind that I appreciated and enjoyed so much more than the performing grind, you know, which you, you figure out quickly, uh, if performing, you know, for cameras for you when you're on your like 15th commercial audition of a week, um, like shilling for soap or something. And so, yeah, so I, I just, I dove into TV writing at at that point, eventually, you know, Had maxed out everything I could do in Chicago, moved to Los Angeles and sort of tried to hit the ground running and, you know, nose to the grindstone. Here I am. That is terrific context. And it really helps set up the rest of our conversation because we really
0: want to get into the nuts and bolts of a show like Drive to Survive on a platform like Netflix. So let's flash back. It's early 2019 and Netflix drops season one. And of course, Formula One hadn't really experienced anything quite like this before. Series does well, but it certainly doesn't pick up steam like season three and season four do during COVID, when people really started turning their heads and paying attention to Formula One. So I think my question for you is. Obviously, Netflix gets top billing on a product like this. It's seen as a Netflix exclusive. It's assumed that it's developed and produced by Netflix, but this one's a little bit more complex than this, that, right? You know, we know box to box is involved, but we don't really know who they are. We know Netflix is involved, but we don't really know what their role is, what their responsibility is other than providing a platform for this product. So my question is, what is Netflix's responsibility, who and what is box to box and how involved is Netflix in the actual production of Netflix branded
2: content like Drive to Survive. Uh, let me quickly tell you how a show like this typically would get made, um, because I think it's actually instructive because of how this one actually came about, which is somewhat different and, and I, I think pretty interesting. So typically, so you've got scripted shows and unscripted shows. Scripted shows are sitcoms, dramas, things with you know narratives and full scripts. Unscripted shows are basically everything else. So this is an unscripted show. Typically an unscripted show, you have producers. So people who like me, who, you know, are used to making content, uh, pair up with talent. Uh, and that talent could be anything from, um, you know, a celebrity who's going to front face for the thing, or in this case, Liberty Media, you know, something like that. But but people who are going to be on camera, they put together a little package that could just be those two entities. They could bring in a celebrity who might be, you know, helpful to, get the thing sold. And then they go out and, you know, you pitch it to networks that networks buy it. And then typically what networks do is they develop the show. So that could mean any number of different things. There's paper development where you're literally writing up treatments and episode outlines and sort of developing the concept that way. There's uh, a, a point where you might make a pilot where they give you a certain amount of money to actually produce a single episode to kind of as a concept for what the show could be. But you're basically working with creative executives and production executives from the network who are helping you shape that thing. So production executives are the ones who are, you know, helping you figure out what is the right file formats that we have to deliver in. They're helping your post-production supervisor, all the kind of nitty gritty of making the thing. The creative executives are probably the ones you think of when you think of the network. They're the ones helping you figure out sort of what this thing would be about and and where the show might have emphasis and what the format might be. And there's basically this kind of ongoing dialogue. That's sort of like typical with how a show would get created here with drive to survive. So this is my understanding of the genesis of the project. James Gay Reese, um, who is, was one of the executive producers on the show. He is a real deal top flight documentary filmmaker. If you've never seen, um, exit through the gift shop, his first film, go see that movie. It's incredible. Senna, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with, um, uh, Amy, uh, about Amy Winehouse, unbelievable documentary, Oscar winning documentary. So he won an Oscar. He's won a BAFTA. This guy is, 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 is not joking around. So he apparently meets, uh, Red Bull folks at an event. And now I, you may or not remember around this time, there was another show on Amazon prime with Zach Brown called Grand Prix driver, uh, which, uh, it, is worth watching it's not great but it's it's interesting it's it sort of feels like the the grandfather of this program in some ways I don't know if it' actually influenced it or not but that conversation happens between James Gay Reese and Red Bull they decide let's do a series about Red Bull they go to, to Liberty media on f1 and communications folks at f1 say we're already talking to networks about possibly doing one with much broader access look uh, if that deal goes down why don't you produce it so the U in that is James Gay-Reese and his partner, Paul Martin, who's another producer. The two of them together are box-to-box films. So production companies can mean a ton of different things. It could mean a single person like me. I have a production company, uh, but it's just me. Uh, and it can also mean full-scale you know, uh, companies that have in-house editors, in-house line producers, um, in-house post-production, all that stuff. So this started with sort of the two of them, and they build out from there. F1 does the deal. They let James Gay-Reese know, hey, this is a go. That is, like, right at Melbourne. So, James Gay-Reese gets a crew, and they just, like, go. Now, the only people they knew at the paddock were the Red Bull folks. So, the reason why you get so much Christian Horner in season one is, that's really who they knew they could sit down with. They knew he was a dynamic character. Um, They quickly find Gunther Steiner. They immediately are like, well, that guy's a character. (laughs) That quote is out there. And they basically start building up relationships from there. The reason I think this is so interesting and so important is they skipped all the development. They skipped all the steps where the companies are saying, well, maybe it could be this, maybe it could be this. You know, th- this is not an expensive show to produce. We can talk more about that later. But like, for Netflix to say, like, here's your approved budget, go – they show up with cameras and they're figuring it out on the fly. I think that really opens up their eyes to figuring out, like, what is interesting here? Who are the interesting characters? Let's let this this show come to us. James Gay, Reese, and Paul Martin were not hardcore F1 fans. They were, like, I think casual fans. And so it makes it much easier to sort of see what casual fans might like in it. And they have all these instincts as documentary filmmakers and storytellers to glom onto the narratives that exist in there and really pull those out and make those sharp. So they had to start really quickly, and that's why I think you see some evolution. Now, to answer your question about Netflix in general, um, Netflix is typically not really involved that much in the production of a TV show, and networks are not really that involved. They approve a budget, they cut the checks, and then they're basically giving oversight once that development phase is done. So. It really means different things at different networks, and it really means different things with different creative executives. They're all different. It's a very fluid relationship, because technically, the network holds all the power, but they respect the creators. They're definitely going to respect someone like James Gay Reese, and they're going to want to give him creative control. That's why they, they are giving him the money. Um, and so, typically, I'd, I'd say like Netflix, they would absolutely weigh in on cuts, you know, when when you're starting to cut episodes. But I think a lot of it is like they're, they're acting almost as a proxy for the brand as a whole and what Netflix wants to be. And then they're also acting as a proxy for the audience. So, like, first line for any of those folks in Giving Notes is like, is something confusing? Is something not making sense? Let me just point that out so they can fix that. And then there's just, like, broader goals of what Netflix wants to do with their content, which they might give them information about. It's the sort of thing, you know, it's really typical showrunner stuff is, like, you get a note from the network, you don't want to take the note, you figure out how to address the note. It's a really fluid and dynamic relationship. But I but I do always cringe a little when you hear people talk about, like, Netflix does this and Netflix does that. Um of course typical tv producer shilling for the other tv producers but it really is box to box that is are are the ones who are making the show i think sort of with the partnership of liberty and f1 who's get who, who's giving them all the access and and um you know uh probably helping them set stuff up with teams when when necessary
0: that's a fascinating story and frankly not one that i was actually aware of you know based on your experience in the industry when you go back and you watch season 1 Is it abundantly clear to you that the agreement for the show was struck on the eve of the season and that this team, the production team, all of the talent involved in bringing this together, were really working on a really aggressive timeline and maybe wouldn't have had the opportunity to prep in the way that they
2: would normally have done so? No, I think it's pretty incredible. I mean, I I bet if you go back and look at some of those season one episodes now, it's pretty obvious compared to sort of they've formatted it a a little bit more. But um, no, I think they kind of hit it out of the park. I mean, I think the first 10 15 minutes of of season 1 uh, especially the first like 5 minutes is kind of a masterclass in unscripted television they get you hooked onto exactly the the couple little details you need to get you in and then the couple little details you need to get you further and further and further uh until you're just in awe of who these drivers are right from the jump. I mean, the opening line is something, I think it's a Ricardo line about like hearing the scream through the city. Like talk about like a, like a hook. Right. Um, and then Horner talking about like, this fighter pilot mentality, the danger of it, the stress of it, these beautiful countries, like the, the raw elements there are so enticing that um, they had amazing stuff to work with. It was just a matter of sequencing it into like a compelling narrative. You talk about
0: the fact that Box to Box, as the production company, was largely left to their own devices when it came to creative licensing, and structuring, and putting together this product. But upon reflection, having watched the twenty twenty one championship and having watched Drive to Survive, can you see or extract any examples of maybe where Netflix really did flex their muscle and try to impose some sort of
2: um, direction on Box to Box? My guess is that. At this point, they've built up the credibility that they pretty much have total control. I'm sure Netflix, Netflix is a very data-driven company, as most of these streamers are now. I'm sure Netflix is sharing some amount of data with them about the kinds of things that do well. You know, I'm I'm sure Lewis Hamilton appearances do well, you know, stuff like that. Kind of obvious stuff. The one thing that jumps out to me about this season that I think is striking is is I think there was a clear and concerted effort to include more women in this season of the show. I I would be surprised if women in general were not sort of seen as an area for growth in the audience of this show. Obviously, it, it, you all talked with Tim on um, Harini on your your other pod, uh, your wrap up pod about Susie Wolf, who's incredible and clearly an amazing addition here. Maybe she just didn't want to be in it earlier. Maybe they didn't ask her, but that feels deliberate. You know, Valtteri Bottas's, uh girlfriend is is in it. George Russell's girlfriend is in it. And also, there's a really interesting moment. I think it's right away in the first episode where Christian Horner talks about his wife, Jerry, uh, and almost justifies why she's there. There's this line he has where he, where he talks about, like, how she's faced a lot of pressure and understands performing and my ears perked up the second I heard that because I was like, clearly someone has said, why are we seeing her and not these other kind of incredible accomplished women? Um, I thought that was really interesting. And I, and you know, it's a male dominated sport. I'm sure they will continue to look for ways to increase all kinds of representation whenever they can.
0: That response is actually perfect because it really ties into the next question. And, you know, bringing together a product like, drive to survive is incredibly complex proposition simply because there are so many stakeholders involved. It's obviously Liberty, the F1 commercial rights group holder. You have the sponsors of Formula One. You have the teams. You have the team sponsors. You have the drivers. You have the driver sponsors and you have the FIA how much, if any feedback or input, would any of these entities have with respect to the final product? And furthermore, we saw a lot of those that were involved in the show, so those that were subjects of the program itself, often seemed quite surprised at either what was included or what was omitted. Does that indicate or infer that the final product that we see is oftentimes the final product that they see?
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I I think the vast majority... Of people are seeing it at the exact same moment we do. The FIA definitely has no input. The sponsors definitely have no input whatsoever. Teams and drivers are, I know for a fact, part of the review process, but not necessarily for any like editorial creative things, but for intellectual property reasons. You know, you've got cameras that are around. You've got cameras that are around these teams all the time. You're telling me if there's cameras around Ferrari or Haas last year that, you know, they didn't catch a whiteboard somewhere, you know, about their 2022 car or, or something like that. And so they do, you you will occasionally see things blurred out here and there. So I think that's part of it. But I also think it's important to keep in mind. There's there's hard and fast lines about where responsibilities are. And then TV is free full of like blurry lines, right? So you think about box to box has a relationship with formula one, right? This is fundamentally an act of public relations. This TV show, it is, it is a form of communication for the, for the, for the brand. Then you also have the, the teams and the drivers who you need their participation. So you, you're massaging that relationship. You don't want to give them like too much power, but you also want them to be happy and excited to sit down with you and, disclosive and all that stuff so you're managing all these relationships so i do think that there i'm sure there are situations where they catch something on camera where they are worried about putting it in they don't feel like it's an integrity issue to lose it necessarily but they would want to get a driver's permission or a team's permission i'm sure that's come up you, you could imagine scenarios where people on their worst day say something cruel or awful um you know that being said, think about the Haas episode from season four. Can you imagine if Nikita Mazapan was still on the team? Like the and and there's you know it's public that Günther signer saying this is why people hate you. You know, like there's there's a lot there that I think is really interesting. Um, that they do leave in clearly. You know, they they leave a lot of friction in. The other thing I would say is they definitely also leave an open door for teams to loop them in on when. Th- that they might want cameras there to film something. I'm pretty confident that Mercedes or Toto gave a heads up to the camera crews when they are going to tell George Russell that he's on that team. That is like a special moment. They want it memorialized. They want that thing part of the show. You know, so I think stuff like that is, is definitely, um, you know, part of the conversation.
0: Max Verstappen, Total Wolf, both on record having said that they felt that at times the producers were maybe a little bit manipulative with the way that the story or information was provided. Can can you help us unpack exactly what it is that each of them were actually saying? You know, we've seen audio sometimes used out of context, a little bit out of place. Sometimes there's radio play by play that seems suspiciously new or has never been heard before during a race broadcast. How is audio cut and repurposed to build a storyline? And how does box-to-box push the narrative along? You know, we see driver quotes, we see team principal quotes, but we also see frequent editions of Will Buxton and Jenny Gao where they're commenting on the state of the season and talking about where the storyline currently is maybe weave all of that together to provide a little bit of context for everybody at home.
2: Yeah. So like you said, obviously audio is moved around, but I think it's always within the spirit of how these people feel. Like I don't I don't think there's anything where they're like there's pure invention. But you could see how on the other side, if you were the one saying it and like, hey, clearly that thing I said about how important the championship is to me at the beginning of the season, they used, you know, at the end of the season, uh it it can mess with your head. I've seen that happen at talent before and And it warps your perception of what this thing is. But I think the important thing to remember is these filmmakers are not inventing anything. They are spotlighting things, but they're not like creating anything whole cloth. And the reality is, no one would want to watch the show where you didn't highly edit people because really, only like highly trained media personalities are the ones who are really good at speaking in condensed, articulate sound bites. So, you also have to remember, you only have so much time in a TV episode. Every word is really purposeful. Every second is valuable real estate. So you need efficient storytelling. So sometimes, you know, that might be as simple as, you know, a team principal uh, one day saying, you know, or I'll use a specific example, you know, Christian Horner saying, you know, that he's suspicious of, uh, you know, um the way in which mercedes is you know developing their car something not that the show ever gets into engineering but just as an example um you know he he might say that uh in five words one day and then give a rambling monologue about it another time uh but you want to use that little five word part and 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 swap it in over it becomes a little bit like do you remember magnetic poetry Where you would have the like you know words on your refrigerator and you can sort of move them around and, and make new poems. Uh, sometimes uh, editing you know for, for you know, unscripted show can be a little bit like that. I'll, I'll give you an example actually. So I I produced this show called Drunk History for Comedy Central. If you're not familiar with the show, we would get someone very very drunk and they would tell a history story and then we would cut it down and reenact it with with actors lip syncing them. They would be about a six minute story we would film with them for about five hours. So there's this point where eventually you just have this kind of like pile of language and every single word that they said is potentially script. You know, there's a reason why those interview setups all always look the same. And the team principals and the drivers are rarely wearing different things. They want to be able to swap those things around interchangeably. So again, I can understand why it's you know, disconcerting for, for the drivers, the team principals, when it seems like that manipulation is happening. But I think it's all in the interest of telling the most compelling version of the story. And the one that I think is accurate emotionally, even if it doesn't always, you know, feel that way to the drivers. Um, You know, when you're laying out an episode, there's these storytelling boxes that you have to check, right? Like there's exposition, you know, okay, this week we're in Bahrain or whatever it is, you know, there's, the stakes that you have to set up. You know, you always need that clear line of sort of why this matters. Why does winning Monza matter to Daniel Ricciardo? It can't just be that he hasn't won a race in a while, right? It's more specific than that. And I think you mentioned, uh, you know, Will Buxton and Jenny Gao, they to me are much more a function of the production than anyone else. Uh, I can't prove this, but I'm fairly certain they are going in at a couple points throughout the season, especially at the very end of the season to help you know, uh, pave over any gaps in the script. Uh, I'm fairly confident they are, they, you know, uh, I'm pretty sure Will Buxton's an F1 employee. I'm, I'm fairly certain those producers are going and saying, great. Can you please say this about, you know, Silverstone? Can you please say this about the importance of this race or that driver or this rivalry? So I think that 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 that's happening there. The total quote specifically, I, I would love to talk about for a second, if that's okay. That the the because I actually have it in front of me. He. Uh, And I think it's worth breaking down. He says, it's scary how much we let them in. You hate to see yourself in there. They create a spin to the narrative. They put scenes together that didn't happen. So he's kind of saying four different things there. The first part about it being scary to see yourself in yada yada, that's anybody who's ever heard their voice like on an answering message. You know, I'm sure when you first started doing podcasting, you're like, my voice, you know, like, I'm sure I will listen to this and and feel the same thing about my obnoxious voice. But the and and, and also I want to say just, you know, sensitively, Toto's been very forward about his mental health. Uh, I'm sure seeing yourself in in that context is a challenge, you know? And so uh, there's that component of it. About creating a spin to the narrative, it's like I said before, I think they're highlighting narratives, you know? They're highlighting things that are already there, and taking away the context. So all that's left is that clean narrative. Again, on Drunk History, we would do the same thing. You have this infinite swath of events in history, but to make it a compelling narrative, you have to carve a line through it. You know, you have to hit the, the points on the graph that give you that clean arc. So... I don't think that's spinning. I think that's again, like I said, punctuating things and 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 giving them weight, and then putting scenes together that didn't happen. I think that's what he's just talking about the transposition of audio. Now, now the Max thing is very different because he talks about faking rivalries. I'm sorry, his tension with Daniel Ricardo in season one. Uh, I'm sure it was more complicated than we saw on screen, but it was not fake. Uh, his conflict with with Esteban Ocon. You, you you can see the footage. He shoves him, right? Like, no problem. And and he's commented on, like, Daniel Ricciardo and Lando in this last season. I'm sure Norris and Ricciardo are actually chummy. I'm sure they're good friends. Uh, but there is undeniably a tension that exists in that relationship. And I think by shining a spotlight on it, the, the filmmakers are not saying this is the only substance of that relationship, but they, but I think they are saying this is an aspect of the relationship. And what these guys are really talking about is the idea of like your edit, you know, air quotes. Like in, in reality TV, this happens all the time. It's like you get a good edit or a bad edit, you know? In a show like The Bachelor, you have people who just get really wholly edited to be villains. I don't think this is that extreme, but um, it's certainly there. And I'm sure when you have much broader context about people, um, things seem off, even though as a viewer, it's just what makes compelling television. Seth,
0: why don't we take a pause, take a break, pay some proverbial bills, and get back to this conversation in just a couple of moments.
2: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us.
0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking
2: requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
0: Before the break, Seth, you had made a comment that really struck with me. And I, I want to ask you a question about this. We see an awful lot of Jenny Gao and we see an awful lot of Will Buxton, which is great because they're there to set the stage and to provide contextualization and to help drive the narrative forward. But my assumption had always been that they're there adding value as the season progresses, being recorded incrementally race after race. And my assumption was always that. It was the same for the team principals and the drivers, that those were being picked up in real time. But now that I think about it, and based on some of the information that you've provided, it makes a lot more sense that Will Buxton and Jenny Gow are maybe recording their segments post-season, post-season to fill in some of those gaps. So does, does that make sense? Am, am I... Am I reading this right, that the drivers, team principals, maybe they're being interviewed in real time as things are happening, but Jenny Gao and Will Buxton, maybe they're being tapped into post-season to help fill in some of those gaps that they weren't able to fill with on-track footage or interviews from team principals or drivers?
2: I don't know exactly, but I do know that it is almost certainly not when it would appear in the progression of a season. So there's if you pay close attention to Will Buxton, you will see him speaking about multiple events in the exact same setup as if it is that week or about to happen. So that's, you know, just clear evidence there. We know that they film with teams on weekends, obviously, but they don't film with every team on every weekend. And so they're random, not randomly, but they're they're putting a lot of thought into who are we going to shoot with when it's possible that they have set times where they're setting up their camera and cycling through as many drivers and team principals as possible. That's one way that they could do it. It's also possible that they just get those folks on, you know, a Wednesday afternoon uh, after everybody sort of gets into town or a Thursday morning or something uh, before they start building the car. Um, that I'm, I'm, I'm not totally sure of. But but if, if you really start... Paying attention to it, which I don't suggest because it will kind of ruin things for you. Um, you'll you'll notice that happening. And honestly, if you actually if you go deep into the credits, um, you'll notice that in season one at least they credited um, ADR professionals. So if if you're not familiar with ADR, um, it, it stands for additional dialogue recording. I think uh, it, it's basically when. Um, you go back after the fact of recording a thing and you go to a really fancy sound studio and you stand there in front of a giant screen and they play the, the TV show or the movie and you re-record audio or you re-record things. If you ever see, like, two people walking through, like, a really windy, like, Central Park or something, chances are almost all that audio was, was recorded, like, later. They did ADR on Season 1, we know, at least on Season 1. And I think it was almost exclusively for uh Calls of the Race, which they still do... Us. they do they do some but less you know um but but again uh all of that kind of stuff is happening um i understand why people bristle at that but i would go back to the point of like does it really ruin your experience to to hear uh invented announcing because it's germane to the characters that you're looking at that week um i think you would probably rather have that than Sort of a less refined, less you know, um, specific version of of the show.
0: Seth, I'm curious now about the technical side of Formula One. I think most of our listeners know that Daly and myself are based out of Vancouver. What you may not know about Vancouver is that it's one of the biggest film and television hubs in all of North America. Back in the 90s, when the industry was really heating up in Vancouver, X-Files was one of the big shows, and it was pretty well known at the time that the dailies, the film that was shot within a 24-hour period, would be shipped down to L.A. to be cut and mixed on the same flights that would carry fresh seafood. And that was important because Fox at the time needed to be able to cut the show and get it into an upcoming time slot. Obviously, Drive to Survive is not being shot on film. It's being shot digitally. But I think my question is this. Do you think, based on everything you know about the industry, do you think that Netflix box-to-box films they're shooting the series and cutting it and editing in real time or are they simply archiving the footage until the season is over and they can start to put together a pretty concise idea of what the narrative is going to be what do you think is it edited and produced in real time or do they wait until the off season to start putting it together
2: so I did some digging on this actually recently and and I actually have a good answer for you okay so like we said, they're not shooting every week or sorry. They're not shooting with every team. They're also not shooting every week. They are I, I, in the first couple seasons. They shot between like 10 and 15 races. COVID really screwed things up in 2020. Last year, I think they were at, at more, but they're, they're not at every single race. Okay. So, but, but they're at a lot of them. So on shooting weeks. Well, uh, let me say this first. There's like the one-off stuff where they go and they'll like shoot Carlos Sainz at his house or Lando Norris golfing, like that kind of stuff. That's like a smaller deal. You're sending a few cameras and a producer and an audio guy. That's like a little camera crew and, 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 and no big deal. On shooting weeks, though, uh at the race, they have six to nine camera crews. Now that could be one person during COVID. Sometimes that'd be one person who was also running audio just for protocols and like to reduce, you know, interaction, but six to nine camera crews, each of them is generating um, or sorry, as a whole, they are generating seven to 12 terabytes of footage per race weekend. So just to, to break that down, a terabyte of 4k footage is about 25 hours of footage. So, so you're looking at. Over 200 hours of footage to go through per race weekend. Now, now this is where I think it starts to get really interesting because you you don't think about this part of it. The second a card leaves a camera, it begins like an epic journey, right? Because that foot... That footage is so important. It is so valuable, right? Okay. So you've got data people uh, in America. We call them DITs. You've got that card gets out of the camera. It is immediately copied three times. You're transcoding. You're, you're transcoding the footage, which means you're converting it into a format that you can use it. You're getting it on drives and those are getting shipped to the UK. So in. In the early seasons of the show, they had to do it in in such a way where they actually had to load it into the cargo hold. Now they've been able to get it down into Pelican cases that they can bring onto the plane because you you don't you do not want those things out of your sight. Right. So the other thing that started to happen is um, during covid and then also when they when travel was just harder and when they get closer to the end of the season and they need to get things back quicker what they do is they'll make proxies of of the footage that they can then use formula 1's like incredible data apparatus to like beam back to the uk so proxies are basically like smaller versions of the files that you can edit with and then you swap the footage later they're beaming that back to the uk so they can start editing earlier while the drives are like making the way there the challenge is and the reason why this is thrilling to kind of tv nerds production nerds like me is When the race is over, that whole paddock is being broken down very quickly. Those data people need to finish their work with all of the power and connectivity that they have set up. So they're sort of racing to get all those cards processed, you know, and going there. Okay, so then the footage gets to the UK, and I promise I'll answer your question about the actual editing part. Every one of those hours, hundreds of hours, has to be watched down, transcribed, Logged. So logging is like, uh, it can mean a lot of different things in sort of the unscripted world, but for, for here, they're probably, uh, going through highlighting key lines, interesting things that people say, great moments, physical things that are interesting. They're, and then all that stuff is going to an edit producer. You know, in America, we call them story producers. Um, Who is tasked with creating that episode? So that, so they are starting to like work on the story using all the beats they have, all the scenes they have, all the lines they have, carving that into an outline, putting it together, doing that magnetic poetry thing. And then they're running it up the chain to the EPs who are work, who are sort of boarding the season as a whole. So it is a little bit like trying to build a Lego like model that you don't know what it's going to be yet and you're doing it while also like running a hundred yard dash. Like it's an incredible, it's an incredible process that they're able to pull it off. You've got editors all over the world who are working on it with them. Um, and again, they're not with every team every week. So they're, they're doing the math on like, okay, it's Monza. Let's try Ricardo and they get lucky. You know, it's Mercedes. Let's try Hockenheim 2018 or 2019, whatever it is, we get lucky. So, um, on the flip side, this season, no Antonio Giovinazzi, no Kimi Raikkonen. They, I, I'm sure they tried. We we know what those narratives would have been for them last year, uh, uh, in retirement and trying to stay in the sport. You know, can you point to the weekend that would have been the perfect one to for you know to 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 get those guys in and build that story? Maybe not. So they are taking all that stuff and going through it and hoping they've got the goods. But, you know, again, if, if they're filming at 15 races, there's only 10 episodes. So and and this last season, it be I'm sure it became very clear very quickly that at least a couple of those episodes had to be dedicated to the championship battle between Max and Lewis. And so you, you only end up with six, seven, eight spots, you know, for other episodes to build. Um, and ideally, the cream rises to the top. I'm sure there are whole other episodes that that hit the cutting room floor.
0: Seth, that more than satisfied my curiosity about how logistically this works from a backend perspective and a production perspective, I think my assumption that this was all put together and developed in the off season and then ready for distribution in March is totally wrong that from the minute they shoot this video and the minute that digital memory card comes out of that camera, the production is in motion and they're cutting and they're editing and they're transcoding and they're backing up and they're mixing right from the jump. So when they get to the off season, it's more about really finalizing, polishing, approving, etc. All right, folks, we're going to take another break, pay some more of those proverbial bills that we always talk about, but we're going to be right back with Seth in just a minute. Welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton, and joining me once again, our special guest, Seth Whiteberg, we were just discussing the mechanics and the back-end process involved in bringing a production like Drive to Survive to our TV screens every single March. and It was really enlightening, especially for me because I've drawn so many assumptions about how a production like this is actually created and produced. Seth, a question for you. You know, F1 fans are notoriously difficult to satisfy. Um, A product like DTS, therefore, is never going to be able to satisfy all corners of the F1 community. Each season, despite presumed monster ratings, there have been a litany of criticisms and critiques of the production. Speaking now, speaking as somebody that has experience behind the camera... Do you find yourself sympathizing or supporting the decisions of the producers, or perhaps believing that maybe they should have made different decisions during production and the editing process?
2: No, I'll chill for the producers every time. Like I said before, the the, the hard thing I think for F1 fans to hear is like, this show was not and is not really made for you. I think the assumption that the producers made from the jump was F1 fans will be interested in this because at the end of the day... They already know what happened during the season. They know about the flexi wing. They know about the DRS gap in in the in the Merck's rear wing. You know, it's like it they don't need to have that stuff rehashed. What F1 fans are gonna geek out about, hopefully, is like, oh, when uh when Massey <laughs> tells Toto Wolf it's only a motor race, he doesn't hear him at first. And he's gotta turn to someone else and ask what he said. Those little nuggets, those little details, just because the cameras were there, that is what that is what uh, the producers, I think, no F1 fans are going to tune in for. They are making the show for a broader audience. Like I said before, Formula One to me is a sport combined with an engineering challenge, combined with a soap opera. Drive to Survive is just the soap opera. The Doing the kind of just like recap on the season would not really be that interesting, especially in previous seasons. I mean, think about like if you really followed the, the driver's championship, you know, for the last for, for seasons one through three it's not a really compelling story at all and i think you know we think of this as a docu series the reality is drive to survive is a reality show and and the distinction you know a lot of times these things can be semantics and the lines get blurred a lot these days but typically a docu series is concerned with like the whole product it's nfl hard knocks on hbo It's, uh, you know, that's a docuseries that's covering the whole preseason. We care about narratives that are sort of all-encompassing to there. Reality show, typically, they're episodic. We care about the arc that happens from the beginning of that episode to the end of that episode. And sometimes there's threads that are linear, or that are sort of narrative throughout an entire season. But on the whole they're not concerned with connecting those things. That's really what's going on here. The, they're taking all the footage that comes in and just going, how do we make the most heart pumping, exciting, compelling, uh, emotional episode of television possible? And the reality is it's obviously working. So you can pick a lot of nits with it, but like the Netflix effect is real. Um, I don't need to talk about that too much. You know, you guys have and, and other people have really well. Um, and the, the fact that I am a Formula One fan <laughs> is entirely because Uh, I was pulled in to the emotions and the stories of the people that are there. You know, we were talking basketball before. Can you imagine watching the NBA and having no idea, you know the journey that Yantes and Kumpo Tec- went on from being like a kid on the streets of Greece selling watches to try to make ends meet to like being the NBA MVP. And then you watch the finals and you see him there against Chris Paul, who spent his career struggling to try to make the finals, always failing, never even making the conference finals for years. If you didn't know any of those like, backstories, the emotions behind it, the human narratives, uh, it would just be like watching a pickup game, you-, you know? And I think that giving us access to like the real emotional parts of what makes these guys tick the flashy beautiful cities you know um the lifestyle that that they're living that stuff is stuff we can relate to and glom on to or or look up to um want to live vicariously through that's where our connection is gonna be and what formula one was hoping and what's been proven perfectly is that has pulled us over to the sport and then I can start going okay how does qualifying work what's q2 what's tire degradation I don't what's an undercut I spent you know, a year Googling that kind of stuff uh, and still am lots of things. Um, but I think the show undeniably hits it out of the park with what it's trying to do.
0: If we recall the era before Liberty bought Formula One, the product wasn't particularly accessible, right? And And Bernie was all about putting the sport behind a paywall. And even though they were doing that, they weren't selling any access anyways. And I think we all recall how frequently Lewis would be the target of fury from the Formula One office simply because he was using social media to share his experiences in in Formula One. Now, I I think the question for you is this. When you look at network television, they are all about ratings and broadcasting ratings and marketing ratings and, and flexing on really strong ratings. And if you look at Hollywood, there isn't an executive in that industry that isn't on boxofficemojo.com on Sunday night and Monday refreshing to see the latest take from the box office hits. That's just how those industries operate and how they're motivated. In the case of Netflix, it's it's quite a bit different, right? Simply because these ratings aren't necessarily accessible and the streaming platforms aren't necessarily transparent with the ratings that are, that are achieved. From, from your perspective, how does this how does this work? Why are they so secretive? and to the best of your knowledge, how does Drive to Survive stack up against some of the other content on Netflix? specifically the Netflix branded content?
2: Well, I think the the baseline this the simple answer is they want to control narratives, right? They want to target releases of information to build buzz, to build word of mouth. It's funny. if you drive around Los Angeles, all the billboards in Los Angeles are for TV and film. (laughs) You don't see that anywhere else. Um, but it's everywhere there because they're speaking to one another in the industry. And I think a lot of times the releases of, of data and information can be that there's also, you're, you're trying to control the perception of the company on wall street. You're trying to control the the perception of the company to investors. You're trying to control perception of the country to other creators. You know, remember they're, they're trying to do big deals with the Ryan Murphy's and Shonda Rhimes of the world. You want to seem like an appealing place where your content is going to get viewed. And, this is maybe in some ways the most important thing, at least uh, to, uh, on my end of things, is you want to have as much leverage as possible when you're deal making and negotiating. If you're going to to the creators of Stranger Things um, or you know any of the sort of biggest shows that have, that have happened in Netflix history, you do not want to tip to them just how big that show is as, if you can avoid it, because you want to be able to, you know, pay as little as possible to get that product. On the flip side, though, you also want to be able to put giant numbers out there because it speaks well of your platform and the kind of content on there. So I think these streamers are always doing that dance. Now, uh, as far as how Drive to Survive did, again, we don't know exactly. A public number that is out there is that in 2021, 50 million people over the course of the year watched Drive to Survive. Sounds like a lot of people, but let's look at those numbers just for one second. What does it mean that a person watched Drive to Survive? Well, we don't know if this is still exactly their metric, but at one point, Netflix was public with the fact that that a a person, quote-unquote, watching Drive to Survive meant they watched at least two minutes of an episode. So, we all know from TV watching that there's many times where you watch three minutes of something and then change it. So, that number is not super reliable, but also... Uh, they did 50 million in 2021. Stranger Things during its last season did 25 million in three days. Uh, season three of, of Drive to Survive was not in, at least based on, you know, weird reporting and numbers that are kind of out there, if you dig a little, uh, not in the top 80, uh, programs for that year. Crushed by shows like Friends reruns and Paw Patrol and Bridgerton, you know, uh, and Squid Games, shows you you definitely have heard of and that are Netflix originals. So it's a huge show. Uh, It is an important show for the F1 community. It is not as important to Netflix as it is to everyone else involved in making the show.
0: The reality of any of those major scripted programs on Netflix is that They have significant financial overhead. They are incredibly costly to develop and and to produce and market. And one of the things I think that probably makes Drive to Survive attractive is it has low overhead and it's reasonably economical to produce. Now, recently, Stefano Domenicali, the CEO of Formula One, has ignited widespread speculation about the future of Drive to Survive, or at least the presence of an F1-themed reality program on the Netflix platform. And I quote, if it's becoming just a different way to speak about F1 without adding or giving to the F1 platform any added value, maybe I think it's better to renegotiate and see with Netflix and with other partners what could be a possibility to something different in the future. My friend, what... What is he saying here? Is this negotiations? Is he trying to develop leverage? What is he trying to articulate in these messages that he's been sharing
2: with the media? You no, know, I think you're dead on. I think this is a negotiating tactic. I think he's trying to get leverage in a deal where, frankly, uh, F1 does not really have a lot of leverage. Like, we know for a fact that they're shooting season five right now, uh, and I'm fairly certain they do not have a deal in place yet to do season six. I'm also very confident they will get that deal done. But Liberty wants to try to get some more return on the the time and energy that their drivers and all those folks are giving to help this production happen. Um, but Netflix really, at the end of the day, does not need this show. And they want to keep it a cheap show. Like you said, the most expensive parts of productions are the talent, the producers, the above-the-line producers, writers... And locations, they're not paying for locations. They're not paying for writers, uh, and there's not that many above-the-line producers. And they're, I, to best of my knowledge, not giving the, the drivers and the teams and the talent anything. I'm sure Liberty is making some money, and I don't. You, you know much better than I if there's some uh, distribution of income uh, uh, that, that Liberty as a whole gets, but you know it's it's not a super expensive show i am guessing the most expensive part is travel honestly you know in addition to the producers fees uh and and at the end of the day that's still not that much money so um i think f1 you know is is and dominicali is they're trying to get some kind of leverage in there you know be, because you got to remember like it's it's not just about that they've grown the sport crazy ways that they never could have dreamed. Um and and gotten all this kind of exposure for the drivers and the teams. Think about the sponsors, Mark. If you are going back to Aramco and re-upping your deal and you can say, "Hey, 50 million people see your name every single time we cut to this track and that track or Rolex or, you know, wh- whoever it is, B- BWT." I mean, that is unbelievable exposure for ev- and, and the teams can do the same thing, you know. I have no No uh, question that that Haas or every other team that needs sponsorship at any point will be able to line it up easily because of that show.
0: Back in 2019, both Ferrari and Mercedes opted out of participating with Drive to Survive. And originally, it's, it's understood or reported that Ferrari opted out because they wanted to focus on their car, believing that they had a shot at the championship. Mercedes followed suit because they didn't want to give up a competitive advantage to Ferrari, given the fact that they were going to be their principal competitor during that championship. But what we saw in the most recent season that documented the 2021 calendar was the fact that the ultimate drivers champion in max verstappen opted not to participate obviously it left a void and the producers at times seem to leverage christian horner quite heavily to to fill that that void but from a production perspective does this put the producers box to box at a particular disadvantage what kind of complexities does this this add to a program that's really trying to capture the competitive spirit and the human element of the Formula One World Championship? Why do you think some folks would opt out? And does this possibly take away from the program in a meaningful way?
2: Yeah, I mean the currency of the show is access. That is it, it's it's striking immediately. I, I believe that the way the show is told to explain to me the very first time was it's like hard knocks, except you get to follow every single team or almost every single team. Obviously there was some Christian Horner fatigue. The internet has been very vocal about that. You would much rather have Max in there. That being said, there's not that much Lewis in there. It's not like there's tons and there's certainly other footage they can pull from when he's talking to other drivers. There's press availabilities, you know, the thing that's frustrating, you know, as a producer with it is these guys have to do so much press and media stuff already that, Look, I'm sure for them, you know, adding on top of it is a giant pain, but most of the grid seems to have recognized that this is very good for their brands. I'm sure that Danny Ricardo is selling a lot more all-good, always, you know, uh, long-sleeve shirts and, you know, helmet collections and enchanté collections, everything that he does there. I'm sure that Lewis Hamilton is thrilled that there is more attention on the, the Hamilton commission and all of his efforts you know with with charity and representation it it's not surprising to me that some of them haven't wanted to be a part of it cuz they're just they're sportsmen they they don't want to be distracted i totally get that it would absolutely be a problem if more of them started to duck out i also wouldn't be surprised if that started to happen if f1 and liberty said okay well this is a new Press obligation. They could totally write it into their deals that this that, that it's an obligation. I don't think that's actually going to happen, but I, I think you can get creative as a producer. I definitely think that they they tried with this last season to you know any time there was a glimpse of Max, I'm sure they were logging that to, to include it. But you you'd hope that in the long run, everyone would would still recognize how good it is for all of them and actively participate.
0: Certainly, I don't think anyone can dispute the fact that in many ways, Drive to Survive was the fuel that really stimulated the growth and the explosion of interest in Formula One in the United States in particular. We're not seeing the same boom of interest globally, but certainly in the United States. With, with your background in TV and film production, if you were handed the reins to the program moving forward, they said, hey, look, season five is yours, season six is yours, what would you do? Do differently how would you frame things how would you uh, take a different approach to putting this production together
2: oh wow that's a great question well i certainly wonder if there is a way to get more footage where you can cross board things and try to break episodes without we're, we're giving more of a sense of a linear narrative through the whole season i think that really would help f1 fans feel like it's it's uh you know, more of sort of like a season as a whole as opposed to these like little weird random chunks. And I and I think that there are more people in and around the paddock and in and around these teams that I think would be interesting to hear from and who have connections to things. Like Lewis Hamilton's physio coach, I, I forget her her name, but like she's there with him every moment I'd be fascinated to know how she sees events and, and things. Anything you can do to in- obviously increase representation on the show would be great, I think. But, but I, like I said before, I think they're trying to do that. But wait, could I actually pitch you... I, I don't know that I would necessarily change that much about the show itself, but there are additional versions of the show that I would love to see. Could, okay, so... Two of my favorite shots in in the show are obviously the reaction shots of the pit crew watching the broadcast, you know, during the race, and also the shots of the pit crew uh, warming up together, you know, with like stretchy, stretchy bands and doing stuff. I would love a pit crew show, like meet the pit crew, whatever it is, you know that there are some amazing characters in there. But you're also talking about people who are spending more than half the year away from their families, traveling around the world. I'm sure there are incredible, fascinating, funny, heartwarming stories in there. And it would be a little bit like the below deck version, you know, upstairs, downstairs. It's like we get the fancy team principals and Toto at his his estate, Christian Hersch's estate. I would love to see like the flat that the, you know, that the pit crew folks are are going back to. That'd be interesting to me. Okay. So that's one. Another one. I, I saw this incredible video that Aston Martin put out. That's like a a full tour of their factory. If you haven't seen it, check it out. It's so cool. You actually get to see like, oh, there's the sim. There's the wind tunnel. There's the scale model they use in the wind tunnel. Here's the fabrication machine, all that stuff. I would love to see, I mean, they would never do this in a million years because of the intellectual property, but I would love to see like a factory wars show like Red Bull versus Merck versus Ferrari, whatever it is. Cause some of the folks that are working there, like the, the strategists, the analysts, the people who are the quants that are like running, you know, algorithms during the race to try to like figure out strategy. I think that stuff is fascinating. And the last one I would see is, do you remember the show Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous with Robin Leach from when we were growing up? I want to see the Crofty or or Damon Hill, one of those guys doing that version of like the cities of F1, traveling around the world. Give me what your week is like in Monaco, Croft, David Croft, you know, like that would be incredible. And, and you know, or in Austin, like I want to see Damon Hill around Austin. That would be incredible. Those Those would be the additional shows. That I that I would love to see,
0: my friend. All we need to do now is get you in front of somebody at Liberty with a PowerPoint presentation and a projector screen, so you can make your sales pitch. Because all of that sounds incredibly compelling to me. But that said, I've seen every season of Selling Tampa, Selling Sunset, Shaw's of Sunset, Keeping Up with the Kardashians. So maybe I'm not the best metric of what the general public would enjoy seeing. But it sounds great. All right, let's take one more quick break. And when we come back, we're actually going to pivot a little bit. And you have some Drive to Survivor Gen DTS type questions for me that you're curious about. So let's take one more break, pay some of those proverbial bills, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark. And as you know, Mr. Mark Daly is not joining us today because we have a special guest, Seth whiteberg from brooklyn new york is here and we've been talking about the mechanics and the logistics of putting together a production like drive to survive now we're gonna flip things a little bit because seth actually has some drive to survive or some gen dts type questions for me so i'm excited to hear these so with that seth i'm gonna flip it over to you
2: you know as someone who came through drive to survive i still do have unanswered questions things that are not easily googleable or I've just been too lazy to Google but there the, these are questions that came up for me during season four as, as I'm watching that that you as a learned scholar of the sport <laughs> I'm sure gone, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure could answer for for me on behalf of the other newbies and maybe there's some more advanced shades of the, some of these questions for 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 uh, listeners who have more experience with the sport okay question number one is Gunther Steiner good at his job because Everyone at Haas seems to get blamed whether it's the drivers or the sponsors or Gene Haas um except for him it it obviously looks like they're putting a lot of Ferrari parts in that car and it is turning around this year but I am I I wonder about him specifically I know that he was partly responsible for the team being formed at all so I don't know if 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 Gene Haas is you know sort of obligated to keep him around but from what you can tell from what you know is he good at his job
0: Look for me I don't believe he is, and and bear with me a little bit. I think for starters, we're going to learn an awful lot about Gunther Steiner this fall when that book that I alluded to earlier comes out. Elizabeth Blackstop is writing that phenomenal book called Racing with Rich Energy, How a Rogue Sponsor Took Formula One for a Ride. and I think this book should give us some pretty solid insights into how that team actually operates. Now, in a perfect world, I think the team principle should be should be responsible principally for everything that's happening at the factory, that you would have an entirely separate team that would be working on the marketing side of the business and would be working on selling sponsorship. I think what we've learned, even in the last season of Drives to Survive, is that Gunther seems to be involved in both sides of the business. He's involved in the operational side of the business, but he's also very much involved in the sales side of the business. And that might just be a byproduct of the fact that this is a team that's running on a shoe string budget. Now, if he is involved in the sales side of the business, then he absolutely needs to be accountable for not only the debacle that was the Uracali sponsorship and the driver that was a byproduct of that relationship in Nikita Mazapan, but he also needs to own some of the responsibility for the rich racing energy fiasco, because that was an embarrassment not only for the team, but for all of Formula One. Now, the other piece of this too would be the performance of the team. And you know, despite the fact that they came out of the gate pretty strong at the beginning of 2016, rocking all those transferable Ferrari components, they've been pretty miserable and they've had significant issues with stability and balance in their chassis throughout their tenure. And then obviously, and this was well documented in the third season of Drive to Survive, they opted out of retaining a qualified experienced racing driver to bring in a purely Pay driver in the ketomazepine. And you know, sometimes that's okay because you get the funding and you get a quality driver and a quality person. And in this case, you got the funding and that's about it. And then the most telling piece is that as soon as that pay driver is gone and that funding has gone, you go right back to the driver that was in that seat before, which tells you that he was always the better option. He was always the right option, but the team was entirely reliant on that funding. And that may not be Gunther's fault ultimately, because it's Gene Haas that's setting the budget and Gunther Steiner is just responsible for working within that budget. But I really do put the blame on Gunther. Now, I think one other thing that I would add or one other caveat that might be important to acknowledge here is in mid 2019, let's call it duck a duck, Ferrari got caught cheating with that power unit. And I won't get into the details of what I think happened there. But when they had to undo whatever it was they were doing to that power unit to give them that 50 horsepower advantage over the rest of the field, that impacted Alfa Romeo and that impacted Haas as well. Because presumably, whatever Ferrari was doing with their power units was trickling down into what Haas and Alfa Romeo were doing with their. So. Short answer, well, maybe the long answer to a question is, I don't know that he's necessarily good at his job. I sympathize because he's working on a shoestring budget. But at the same time, this team is just consistently surrounded in chaos. And for that, I think he needs to own at least some of the responsibility.
2: Okay. Speaking of, of team principles, this was our introduction to Yos Capito this season. Amazing guy. Uh, gr- Another great character. Really excited to to watch him more. I have heard of rally car racing. And season four, when they showed just a tiny, quick bit of it, when they were introducing Yas, it made it clear to me that I actually have no clue what it is. What is Rally Car Racing? Should we all be watching it too? Because I think it kind of looked incredible.
0: Look, I love Rally Car Racing. And the pinnacle of the sport is the World Rally Championship, which is, again, like Formula One, it's really officiated and managed by the FIA, who obviously plays a big role in all global motorsports, with the exception of some of the stuff that happens on our continent in Indian NASCAR. WRC is phenomenal, and it's phenomenal for a couple of reasons, one of which is that unlike Formula One, the cars that these folks are driving in the championship are intentionally very, very similar to what we would see on the road. In fact, if a manufacturer wants to enter a car in the WRC, they're obligated to sell a version or a variant of that car on dealer lots across the planet. And they need to be able to sell a certain quantity of those units to be able to qualify to race in the World Rally Championship. And I, for whatever reason, after all my years of following motorsports, I can still not say this word properly, but they basically need to homologate their cars, meaning that, hey, you know what, Mr. Bishi or Mr. Mitsubishi, if you want to enter the championship with a Mitsubishi Lancer Evolution, you know what, you need to sell a variant of that car on dealer lots and you need to be able to sell X number of units to be able to enter the championship. So for that reason, And you'll often see cars in the WRC championship in the world rally championship that are very similar to what you might actually see on the road around you. Specifically in Europe, you'll see a lot, awful lot of Polo R's and in North America, you'll see the Mitsubishi Lancer Evolutions and the Subaru Impreza WRX STIs. Now the versions that are actually being raced, they're gutted. There is no interior other than the seats and a roll bar, but they are very, very similar from a power unit perspective. Of course, they'll have beefed up suspensions and brakes, but they are very, very similar to what we'll see on the road. Now, an actual rally car race weekend is incredibly different. You're talking about cars that are racing on a combination of private roads, logging roads, dirt roads, deserts, public roads, trails, anything and everything they will compete on. Now, the race weekend is broken into stages, and a stage could be two kilometers, a special stage, or it could be. 50 kilometers they will race in any condition rain sun snow it is phenomenal but it's incredibly incredibly dangerous now as a tv product it's a little bit more complex because formula one makes it easy you have free practice one two and three you know when those slots are you know how long they are you've got qualifying you know exactly when that is you know exactly how long it's going to be in the have the grand prix which is an hour and a half an hour and 40 minutes and you're done and you're out The rally racing weekends are a much, much, much bigger commitment, but it is a phenomenally entertaining product. Now, the other consideration, though, is people complain about the lack of parity in Formula One. Well, really, with the exception of one championship since 2004, only two drivers have won a driver's championship in in the world of rally racing. But I would encourage people to check it out. It is extremely different than Formula One, but it has its own spin and it has its own style. And it's kind of cool to see more, I would say, street similar or street comparable cars as opposed to something like a formula one car, which is designed and engineered with one specific function and doesn't have to adhere to any policies around homologation.
2: That seems absolutely terrifying. Uh, (laughs) um, And that actually reminds me, okay, so that, that gets me to another question I have, which is, it is when you see F1 drivers hop into road cars, it's always like a little jarring in the series. Now, granted, they have like, Much fancier cars than us. But can you break down a little bit besides the obviously like the speed and the extra G's of the experience, like of driving an F1 car? uh, How is it different than, say, the car you and I love, the Volkswagen Tiguan?
0: My friend, I completely forgot about that. We share that in common. We're both rocking newer Volkswagen Tiguan's. By the way, I love mine. We are not sponsored by Volkswagen, so I probably won't get much deeper into detail there. The other thing that I do find interesting from a Formula 1 perspective is you often have younger drivers that enter the sport that they themselves may not have a driver's license and may not be able to drive on public roads. To answer your question, though, and obviously I've never driven a Formula 1 car, but I've certainly read a lot about it. I don't think a normal human being can get into a Formula One car and maneuver around a racetrack. In fact, Back about 15 years ago, Top Gear did a segment with Richard Hammond, and they basically sent him to the track at Silverstone. And at the time, the Renault Formula One team was there, and they had the 2005 or 2006 World Rally or World uh, Championship car there—the car that Fernando Alonso had used to win a championship. But they also had the equivalent of an F2 and an F3 car. And again, Richard Hammond's a guy that's been driving fast cars and driving on track for a very, very long time, and. Ultimately, what they wanted to be able to do is get him into a Formula One car so he could experience it and talk about it. But they can't just sit him into that car, right? So they spent a lot of time migrating him through the F3 car and the F2 car. And, you know, the F3 car was difficult to drive. It was heavy. It was mechanical, but he was able to do it. And then they moved him to the F2 car, and it was unlike anything he had ever experienced in terms of the physical strain on his body and his muscles and the sheer acceleration and the mechanical grip. It was just unbelievable and then they spent the rest of the episode and i'm up post this on our Twitter feed because I think it's really interesting to watch. For the rest of the episode, they had him in the Formula 1 car. And again, this is a guy who has significant experience on track and driving fast cars. But he struggled immensely because he couldn't get enough heat into the brakes. He couldn't get enough heat into the tires. If he couldn't get enough heat into the tires, he couldn't make it around a corner without spinning. If he couldn't get any heat into the brakes, then he'd miss all of his brake markers. It was a disaster. But it just really reinforced what an immense skill and talent it is to pilot these cars, not only in the sense that you need to be able to process a ton of information in real time, everything that's going wrong around you, your shift points, your break points, uh, all the competition, the data that's being fed to you by the team, but there are massive physical strains on the body, unlike anything that you or I have ever imagined. Like We talk about the aerodynamic, I would say, features of the car and the fact that These cars are generating downforce specifically so they can take corners at incredibly high speeds. Well, the body wears all of that, that brunt, all of that strain, and it goes through your neck and it goes through your muscles. And there's reasons why so many of these drivers spend an eternity in conditioning, working on their core and their cardio. And you see these videos and we've seen it in drive to survive where they're working with their trainer and they're pressing against elastics that are pulling on their neck muscles because they need to prepare and train their neck and they need to train their muscles for the g-forces that are going to be experienced in these cars so to answer your question quite frankly i don't think very many human beings can get into a formula one car and complete a a lap not without significant training before and after the one thing I would say is that Formula One cars presumably are incredibly uncomfortable. I have had the pleasure of sitting in one. I've never had the pleasure, sim at least at a factory, but I've never had the experience of driving one, but I would say that they're uncomfortable. What I would recommend you do is go on a hot, sunny summer's day and spend an hour in a go-kart. You will be physically drained driving that car around that the track and absorbing the heat from the engine and having to fight the brakes and fight the steering. And your body just has to absorb so much of that that strain. Unlike a road car, right? Like a road car is designed and engineered specifically in such a way to accommodate the things that you need air conditioning and android auto or uh apple carplay whereas a formula one car is designed and engineered with one specific application which is you know what we're going to stick a pilot in here and comfort and carrying groceries are irrelevant we just need to be able to get this vehicle around a track as quickly as possible while adhering to the regulations that are stipulated by the fia and the technical regulations so i don't know if that answers your question i'm probably rambling a little bit
2: uh yeah and then add porpoising and uh (laughs) <laughs> you know, and all that. Well, that certainly makes sense why uh, Yuki Sonoda starting to exercise would have some impact on his uh, career. Okay, last question for you is, this is something I've I've been dying to, to understand better, and it is about the pit wall. We see the, the team principal usually and definitely the engineers sitting at the pit wall looking at this wall of screens and data. I Obviously, there's timing screens there. We know there's weather there. It also seems like they're the broadcast is there. Are are they just watching the broadcast in addition to all their information? Um, what else is on there that we wouldn't think of or wouldn't expect? Um, you know, you, you'll see Christian Horner with like a keyboard in front of him. Like I I can't even imagine what what they would be what they would be typing. When, when, uh, they say to an engine, when the driver says to an engineer, check this tire or that tire, is the engineer doing that? Is someone back at the factory doing that? Break down, like, just what is that sort of like wall of screens doing, and what are the sort of individual responsibilities for breaking it down?
0: So that's a really good question. I, I think the first thing we probably need to understand is there's typically, I think, five individuals that would be sitting at the pit wall and they would be responsible for things like you'd have one person that would be focused on sporting regulations. Are we on side with the FIA? You would have somebody else that would be focused on weather. You'd have somebody else that would be focused on vehicle reliability, the health of the vehicle during the course of the race. Typically, you'd have the technical director if that he or she is at the race. And then, of course, you would have the strategy manager or a team principal. So you've got a number of different people with a number of different roles looking at different aspects of the race. Now, what's really key to understand is is that most of the data that they are looking at is either being requested by them of the team back at the factory, I would call that for the sake of this conversation, just say it's mission control, or it's data that is being pushed to them From the factory, So you've got a team at the factory, they're monitoring all the team radios, they are looking at data, they're looking at telemetry, they're trying to extract as much valuable information from the competitors as possible, they're looking at track conditions, and they're feeding all of that data into the pit wall. So the people there, whether they're responsible for strategy, whether they're responsible for making a decision around vehicle reliability, whether they're responsible for any other R, they're getting the information that they need to be able to make the decisions that they need to be able to make. When are we going to pit? When are we going to change tires? What are we going to do if it starts to rain? What are we going to do with respect to, uh, I would say, a sporting regulation violation from another team, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So one, they're pulling information out of mission control at the factory. And then the team at the factory is also pushing valuable information to them. The other thing that's really interesting to know is, When you look at the team back at the factory, they're also running countless and endless models and simulations because they're trying to predict outcomes based on inputs that they're pulling from data and telemetry in the vehicle and sensors at the track. So they need to be able to help the team and the pit wall make informed decisions. So for instance, if the weather's going to cool by five degrees over the course of the race, and there's the likelihood of rain, when could that rain come? And what is the recommendation on tire based on modeling and information that we already may have based on historical experiences at the track or based on information that's being provided to us by Pirelli or information that we picked up during a winter testing session. So they're modeling out and simulating a variety of different scenarios because the team needs to be prepared so that if it does, for instance, start to rain, they're not scrambling. They've already modeled out the scenario if it starts raining at 4 15 p.m and we're on a medium compound tire we need to pit we need to have these tires ready and then we're going to run this engine mode until the end of the race so it's a lot of data. It's a lot of shared collaboration, but ultimately the team on the pit wall is the team that's going to make the decisions, but they can't make effective decisions unless they're being provided with the right information from the factory themselves. And the factory is procuring information from a host of different places, from data that's coming from the cars, from data that they're picking up from team radios, from other teams, radios, from photography, from the actual broadcast feed themselves. And then to be fair, the folks on the pit wall are often just watching the sky feed. They're watching tele or they're watching weather broadcast. They're looking at a lot of the same data that we are, what we're not seeing and what they will never share is the information that they're using to inform race decisions.
2: It certainly gives sky sports and the broadcast team this odd bit of power i mean to be able to be able to control what you're seeing i mean you know you have the ability to see where all the cars are on the track and things like that but you know um that's an unbelievably heady responsibility i would imagine for the the tv producers there i'm always thinking about the people that are producing uh that that broadcast that's interesting
0: i look at the clock now and realize seth that i've had you for a good hour and a half and i really cannot thank you enough for giving us So much time today. I think our listeners are going to find your insights and your explanations of how a show like Drive to Survive is ultimately produced and brought to a streaming platform near us uh, to be very, very informative and very, very interesting. Now, before we go, I've got a couple of questions for you. One, I'd love to know your early, your early prediction for both the driver's title and for the constructor's title. Obviously, that Italian team is looking pretty good as we're a couple races into the championship. And then the other question is for anybody that might be interested in following you on social media or checking out some of the work that you've produced in the past, one, where can they find you on social media? And two, where would you recommend and what would you recommend that they
2: check out on a streaming platform or TV network? Oh, that's great. Um, uh, My early prediction that i'll make with my head is i think ferrari's extra time in the wind tunnel and development time i i, I see them at the very least winning the constructors uh we'll see if perez can can uh, get red bull you know up there but my heart wants to say that Merck will figure out some upgrades at, at imola and get in the race i mean the idea of having a three-team battle that is comparable to the two-team battle we had last season would be incredible. So, uh, you know, we were talking about basketball before. There's a very famous moment where the Miami Heat rip the heart out of the San Antonio Spurs in Game 6 of the NBA Finals, and then, you know, the Heat go on to to win that. And then the San Antonio Spurs were just, like, on a rampage the next season to get revenge for that. That is, is what I want for Lewis this season. I don't know if it'll happen, but fingers crossed for that. And where
0: can people follow you? Where can people check out some of the great work that you've produced in the past?
2: So I am at Seth Whiteberg on Twitter, W-E-I-T. Please holler at me. I am always dying for more people to talk to about Formula One. Yeah, it, go back and check out um, the show Patriot Act on on Netflix that we made uh, with Hassan Minaj. Many of those episodes are still you know, current and timely and interesting. And then, um, yeah, please go check out Drunk History. You can find most of that stuff online. Uh, There's three episodes of that that I was actually also a a narrator on that I got incredibly inebriated and told stories about Dolly Parton and the founding of the LAPD. And those are fun, too. So check them out.
0: Seth. And with that, I cannot thank you enough for joining us today. This was sensational. I got everything out of this conversation that I wanted to get out of. For me, it was insightful and informative. And I hope that all of our listeners found it to be the exact same, which I'm sure they did. For those of you listening, thank you again. This has been another episode in our interview series, part of our efforts to create more content for the 2022 year, bring more useful insights, information, experiences to you. If you're enjoying the interview series, please reach out via social media. We'd love to hear your feedback. And also, and this is a big favor that both Daly and I ask, if you're enjoying the podcast, if you can give us a review and a rating on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts, it means the world to both of us. So with that, we're going to wrap this up. Thank you so much for joining. Until next time.